so that unless you know you would think that they are talking about scripture. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Unrefined Podcast. And I have Lindsay here with me today. Hey, guys. And we have a really special guest here today, a guy that uh, I've been wanting to have on the show for a while, and he has an incredible testimony, and we'll see how far the rabbit hole goes goes with this. Just kind of for reasons you'll find out shortly that, you know, there needs to be a certain amount of anonymity. So anyway, uh, it's my friend Ben, and he has a story to tell. Let me tell you, it's a pretty incredible story, so... Ben, um, I'll let you do a little introduction. You can go as, you know, introduce yourself as much as you want to and, and kind of just dive into your uh, testimony if you'd like, uh, if you don't mind. Brandon, I would love to. Let me just say that before we get started, that I'm doing all of this to expose the enemy and his deceptions, to expose the lies that we have been fed and to give all the glory and the honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. We're with you, Amen. bro. Yeah. To get into it, I'll give a little bit of my background and a little bit of my testimony, and we'll see, like you said, how far down the rabbit hole we can go. Well, I grew up in church, knowing the scriptures, knowing the gospel. So I think that that is a good place to start with my story. So you can see just how far and how quickly you can deviate off of that path. So how were you when you got saved, Ben? I was six years old whenever I was saved and then baptized very shortly thereafter. And a little caveat, a little funny story. Whenever I was in kindergarten, uh, I was actually... Asked to change schools. I won't say expelled, but asked to change schools because I was proclaiming the gospel and apparently telling all of my fellow classmates that if they didn't repent, that they were going to go to hell. <laughs> that is so awesome. I love it. Oh, I have a story similar to that, but we're, it's not about me. It's about you. Keep going. <laughs> so I grew up, you know, in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and always felt that there was something special, something more that the Lord wanted from me. And I grew up in a very traditional, fundamental, independent Baptist church. Mm. The supernatural was not discussed. The gifts of the Spirit were borderline blasphemy if you decided to talk about them or much less express them. So what I'm about to share really took me by surprise and really was something that I had never been exposed to until I experienced it firsthand. So growing up, like I said, very conservative. And I think it's important to note that I met my wife whenever we were 16 years old. And she was raised in a Pentecostal church. So at that age, that was my first experience being around spirit-filled people. Not taking anything away from the love and the dedication of those people that I was raised amongst, just a different type of expression of faith. 
So we made our first couple of years, my wife and I, dating, attending a church of God. And that is where I first publicly accepted my calling to do ministry. And it was shortly after that that we really came under spiritual attack. And we can discuss that story a little later. But the reason I'm here, whenever I was 18 years old, I was approached by a friend and a mentor who later I found out was not truly a friend. And he invited me to join a fraternity that he was a part of, a fraternity to help good men become better men. And of course, we all know that I am talking about the Freemasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, who can argue with that? You know, a statement like that. What man doesn't want to be a better man? Yeah. Yes, and especially since... This was a man who I had tutored under and who I had really looked up to for spiritual advice and guidance and who had up to this point really been there for me through some really trying times. Mm -hmm. So obviously I thought, well, if he says it's okay, you know, it must be okay. After all, they have a G in their symbol representing God, Mm -hmm. which is one of the biggest misnomers. But we will circle back to that. So at 18 years old, you have to be at least 18 freeborn to become a Mason. So I was initiated. I went through my first three degrees, and I was raised to the degree of Master Mason in three and a half months. I accelerated very quickly and was rising through the ranks very quickly. After I was initiated, that following fall, I was asked to hold a seat in the lodge. And that seat was the position of the tiler, who is the person who guards the entrance to the lodge during meetings. So I embraced it with enthusiasm. I thought that we were really doing something, you know, that all these men were great men of God, that they wanted to improve their communities. They wanted to be the best husbands, the best fathers, the best businessmen. They wanted to be the men that God truly created them to be. Well, Ben, can I ask you a quick question? Absolutely. What uh, what right was this? Whenever you first get into masonry, your first three degrees right. do not have a right. It's just referred okay. to as the Blue Lodge. Blue Lodge, okay. After you receive your first three degrees and you are raised to the degree of master mason right then you can select which right the scottish right or the york right okay typically people associate the york right with the shriners if you know anything about masonry most people do not most people do not realize that shriners are master masons who have been raised through all the degrees of the york right and then raised into the shrine. Yeah, I just recently learned that, Ben. I just I thought they were a completely separate deal until recently. So that's the thing that's so heartbreaking about it, because we all know the Shriners Hospital and what good they do, and the little cars Absolutely. they ride around in, and their little yeah. fezzes. Yeah. Yeah, they used to have a hamburger stand at the Yazoo County Fair. 
Well, uh, here's the thing, Ben. We have to remember, I mean, I'm just going to interject a little scripture here, is, you know, the the devil can come as an angel of light. I mean, we have to keep that in mind. We always want him to be like, who was that rapper that did the obscene stuff at the award show that dressed in red like the devil? I can't remember his name. I, I, you know his name, uh, Lindsay? Nas, that little Nas X or whatever. No, not Girl. him. It, it was a white dude. No, little Nas uh, X was the one with the, the blood shoes. Okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I can't remember. Uh, Kendrick Lamar. Is that who it was? Yeah. I think okay. so. Yeah, and so we, we always think that's what the devil looks like, and, and that's one of his biggest ploys, you know, is to is to, to make us think that and say, oh, well, don't look over here what I'm really doing over here with my real guys. I just want to interject that. I just thought that was because they do such great work. I mean, you can't argue with that. All no. the hospitals and all the work and 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 every every guy in this fraternity that I know is is a great guy. Most of them are most of them don't don't get as high as you did, which we'll get to. But but you know they're they're kind of the lower lower level, and they don't really aren't in the know, I guess. So I guess you'll get into that too. So but, uh, but yes. you know they're great guys. So anyway. Before we move on, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who supports us as an unrefined friend in our online group. But the real stuff is happening in a members-only community. We are building a community of like-minded Jesus followers who desire to go deeper in the Word and link arms, staying alert, you know, just being aware of these times. We have members-only bonus episodes, early access episodes, live Q&A, behind-the-scenes stuff. We also host podcast accelerated coaching and masterminds, which those are a lot of fun. And oh, did I mention we have an app? So come join us at unrefinedpodcast.com or find our link in the show notes after the show. Now, what were we saying? Keep going. Yeah, absolutely. They are great guys. Um, After I received my Master Mason ranking, I took my first lodge position as the Tyler, and then I made the circuit through the lodge, serving in one position a year until I had made it to the degree of worshipful master, which hearing that come out of my mouth now is so abominable, and it really makes me ache deep in my soul, even hearing the words come out of my mouth at this point. But I was so excited. And the doors of opportunity that were open to me were incredible. During this time, I also had bought out a business that was my grandfather's and then my father's, and business was fantastic. I was also going to college full-time and had gotten married in the process. So here we are, living life. Nothing seemed to be out of reach. We were the talk of the town, so to speak. We were always at galas or political events. We had dinner with the mayor. We had dinner with some of our congressmen. Uh, One of our senators is still a friend of mine. I even opened up some of our congressional meetings with a word of prayer. Now, mind you, all this time, I'm still serving in the church. I am still outwardly showing all the signs of being a wonderful Christian. Now, Ben, were you still in, were you still in the conservative uh, Baptist church or were you in your wife's Pentecostal church when you were doing this? 
Well, we actually started making a circuit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I became ordained during this time, mm-hmm. and we served as a youth pastor at a Baptist church. And then it was a Southern Baptist, not a independent Baptist. Yeah, so a little, a little uh, more liberal. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to get myself in trouble here, but I don't care because I'm unrefined. Yeah, the, the Southern Baptists, a lot of people don't know this, have okayed Freemasonry. It's like it's compatible with Christianity, by the way. Absolutely. So, yeah. In fact, even one of the best-known Southern Baptists, the beloved Billy Graham, was a Freemason. So as you can see, during this time, all of these great men that I looked up to and I respected, even much like their Billy Graham, you know, he was a Freemason. How can it really be as bad as these people are saying? Right. But that is when things started to change. I had served in every position of the local lodge, the Blue Lodge. I had made connections all over my state, surrounding states, going to meetings. I was becoming well-known, well-locked, and I loved all the brothers that I was meeting. Well, most of the brothers I was meeting. There were a few, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. And the thing that really appealed to me is when we would travel, I would find a lodge, and I would attend, and they would welcome me with open arms. That sense of camaraderie and brotherhood, it is so deeply indwelled in the essence of a man to have that camaraderie and that acceptance, that thought of these men find me worthy of standing next to me, meaning that I'm a man equal to them, Mm -hmm. which we could do a whole podcast on what it means to be a man. Right. And we could do a whole podcast on how that doesn't happen in the church, I want to throw in. But anyway, I'm not going to, I'm going to shoot that rabbit. (laughs) It's supposed to, but it doesn't. Anyway. You were right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like I said, just that that connection between between men who you know that they are like minded, who are conservative in their beliefs, who hold yeah. typically faith and family above all. Right. And it didn't matter if we were in Canada, New York, California, Colorado. I could go into any lodge and be welcome with open arms, as could any Mason. So I was getting so engrossed with this, and it took up other than Sundays and Wednesdays when we were at church. Pretty much every other day of the week, you could find me doing something involving the lodge. The Blue Craftsman. I know you fellows have seen the little blue book that all Masons pack around. There are certain things that are listed in there, certain rituals and rites and passages, but the thing that most people don't realize is that about 70% of that book is missing, and the only way to learn it is from a fellow Mason, and it's memorized from one generation to the next. So if you learn everything in that, there is something like a thousand pages of memory work. Very few people memorize that in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I had it memorized by the time I was in my early 20s. 
So I had another level of notoriety because when you do get that memorized, you get a a nice decorative little pen. They sarcastically call it your know-it-all pen, but it's your proficiency pen. Mm-hmm. It means that you have memorized it, that you can lead in any rite, any ritual, that you can teach any stage of it to a fellow Mason. And it's just a, a special recognition that not many people achieve because not many people want to put in the work in masonry to learn everything, much like most people don't want to put in the work to excel. I mean, just to be honest, at anything in life, they're fine yeah. with mediocrity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was something that I was never blessed with or cursed with. If I'm doing something, I'm going to be the best at it, which is a blessing and a curse on its own. You know, what's interesting about all this, Ben, is that that knowledge that you're talking about that, it, I mean, I'm going to use this word and you can correct me if it's wrong, but that esoteric type knowledge that's not in that book, it, it, it's been handed down for thousands of years. You know, most people think masonry started in the, what, uh, 15, 1600, something like that, maybe a little earlier. Yeah, yeah around, around the 16th century. Yeah. And... It, that 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 knowledge goes back, since, I mean, what millenniums? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it yep. it goes yeah, back yeah. to the building of King Solomon's Temple. Yeah, yeah. And they have they have very compelling evidence to support that. Mm-hmm. And after being in it and learning as much as I've learned, I have no doubt that it went back to King Solomon's Temple. Oh yeah, I, I think before. I mean, we had a guy on our podcast. We we didn't talk about this, but his book is called Genesis Six Conspiracy, and he has traced it all the way back to before the the Tower of Babel, and it came down yeah. from the fallen angels. It's, it's the liberal arts, so to speak, or the liberal sciences. I mean, it's not a coincidence that you go to college and you get a what a degree. <laughs> yes, no, and you were so right, and. I truly do believe that the knowledge that has been imparted for millennia at this point has demonic origins and that they are so familiarized with human patterns mm-hmm. and human limitations that they endow certain people with their knowledge. Part of them being a familiar spirit is them being familiar with certain things, with certain people. That puts a new twist on familiar. Yeah, familiar that really does. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Yep, yep. And something that is so eye-opening that I don't know that I would have ever connected the dots from one to the other had I not been involved in all of these occult practices. Because now that my eyes have been opened, the scales have been removed, so to speak, that's exactly what Freemasonry is. I mean, it's witchcraft. It's the occult. At its truest sense, because we are definitely, they, let me back up, they definitely use witchcraft in the sense that they try to manipulate the world around them by spirits other than, so to get back on track a little bit, so we don't get too far down this esoteric rabbit hole, as I was progressing through gaining knowledge, Gaining light. That is an important distinction in masonry. You never pursue knowledge. You pursue light. Which goes back 
to the enemy, to Satan, appearing as an angel of light. They have stolen the language of Scripture and put a brutal twist on it so that unless you know, you would think that they are talking about Scripture. And it's all through the symbology in the lodge. The altar, for instance, you have the three great lights of masonry, which are the sun, the moon, and the Holy Scripture. But something that I really didn't realize until I had been involved for a few years, the Holy Scriptures are whatever book you prefer. Much like I did not realize until I had been in Freemasonry for a while yeah. that between the square and the compass, the letter G stands for the grand artificer of the universe, not God, not Yahweh. Is that like the grand architect? Is that the same? The grand architect, yes. Yeah, yeah. Artificer is just a little more fancy language. Latin, I guess. Huh. Yeah, Latin. Um, so yeah, there's... Once you start to realize what is actually going on, and it doesn't happen in your first three degrees. It does not. 99% of the men that you see that are Freemasons want to do well. They want to be the best men that they can be. Yeah. Most of them want to serve the Lord with their whole heart. And they truly believe that what they are doing is furthering that. It's furthering their call to proclaim the gospel, to live a righteous and holy life set apart and sanctified. And so that's why like, I get into discussion, and I don't argue with people on Facebook anymore. I mean, not really. And but you get in a, you get in a discussion with them, and when I bring something up, I have several Mason friends on my Facebook. They'll they'll rightly so say, "Hey, I don't know where you get this, but that's nothing what I'm experiencing because they're being truthful. They that's are being truthful. That's not what they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. But as you progress through, after you receive your third degree, after you've went through and got everything to become a Master Mason in the Blue Lodge. Then you are eligible to, like we were discussing earlier, go into the York Rite or the Scottish Rite. Myself, I went through the York Rite first, because it's a shorter process. And then, once I got through that point, I decided not to become a Shriner. Honestly, simply because the Shriners did not fit into my plans. Hmm. I did not see the Shriners helping me further my agenda politically or in business. So I took a step back and then I joined the Scottish Rite to which I progressed through the 32nd degree. Now, now tell everybody, I, I just need to ask you this, this statistically how many people reach 32nd degree masonry? Not many, right? Do you, you have an approximate uh, 
percentage, you think? Out of Freemasons. Right. 1%. Reach a 30-second yeah. degree. Oh, wow. yeah. There again, most people do not strive for excellence. They just want to be comfortable. I know you well enough, Ben, to know that you, you don't, like you said, you don't do anything halfway. You do it full full blast because I've seen it in your walk with the Lord. So I totally believe that you would make it to the, the top 1%. Yeah, and just to caveat off of that, the other walks of my life were the same. Uh, my wife and I both are high achievers. We have served on city councils. We've served in the county commission. We have been presidents of boards, organized fundraisers. My wife was even the event coordinator for our region, for all their parades. And if something was happening in our area, we were involved in it one way or the other. You know, we we were those people who went and spent $500 a plate to go to a gala event. Mm. Uh, business, my business was doing phenomenal. We had all the boats, the cars, the motorcycles. At, at 24 years old, we lived in a 6,000 square foot brick home mm. and had a vacation property. We were doing pretty well. And everything seemed to be falling into place. Mind you, all the time we are still preaching. Whenever we reached 27, our first daughter had been born. It was wonderful. Great pregnancy. Wonderful little girl. Life was still fantastic. We had accepted a position at a Methodist church to be pastors. Still running the business. And at 27, my youngest daughter was born. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize if I get choked up a little bit. I still can't make it through this story without becoming emotional. It's an incredible story. I mean, <laughs> we had my youngest daughter. Pregnancy was great. The delivery was wonderful. Everything was still going according to plan. From anybody on the outside looking in, they would have said that the favor of God was on our life. No doubt about it. That we were wonderful people. That we loved people. We helped people. We volunteered. We gave to charity. I mean, just... From the outside looking in, I could not have painted a more picturesque caption of our life. Little did people know, and we're going to get into that now. When my daughter was three weeks old, my wife noticed that her eye was protruding. So she made an appointment with the doctor, with the pediatrician, and went in. The pediatrician didn't seem overly concerned. It was springtime. 
So she said, well, it's probably just allergies. And, you know, she's so little that the puffiness really, it really looks exacerbated. So I was like, okay. So she prescribed just an antihistamine, a Benadryl. A couple of weeks went by. The problem had not gotten any better. In fact, it had gotten worse to the point that we were afraid when she would cry. We were afraid that her eye was physically going to pop out of socket. So my wife and I went back. My wife really insisted that we that something has to be done. And the pediatrician agreed due to the severity over just a few weeks. So we went to a children's optometrist at a a world-renowned children's hospital. I don't want to give too much information away. Yeah, we understand. And the eye itself was fine. But they found something of concern. And that's all they would tell us in the beginning. So they set us up an appointment with another doctor. And we went, and it was an oncologist, a pediatric oncologist. They did some testing. They did some imaging. Our daughter had a mass behind her eye around the ocular nerve going through the nerve inlet into the skull. And upon further testing, more imaging, blood work, the whole gambit of things, they told us that it was cancer. Mm. So here we are, our three-month-old daughter, beautiful, perfect little baby, has ocular cancer. That's got to be rare, right, Ben? I mean, that didn't happen it, very often, it, does it? it I mean, no, it, it doesn't happen. Our daughter was one of two cases in the country. Yeah. yeah that's uh, just to give Man. you the numbers that the doctor gave us. Obviously, I didn't verify it, but she said that it was one of two cases that she knew of in the country. So, being that she was so young, they needed to be able to put her to sleep to do MRI imaging. They could not do that until she was six months old, just because the risk factor was so high of them putting an infant that small to sleep. Mm-hmm. So for the next three months, as you can imagine, we were just a wreck. And we made it through the next three months. All the while, little things were just starting to slip. This picturesque life that we had built, things were starting to slip. Obviously, we were distracted and not at the top of our game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So at six months old, she has her first MRI. They put her to sleep. The imaging takes roughly an hour. They confirmed and verified everything. So then we had the news that while it is extremely rare, it is also only, in her case, it's only on the optic nerve and it doesn't seem to be attached to any of the surrounding tissue. 
that it couldn't be removed from. So they told us that the best case scenario and what they would recommend would be surgery to remove the eye, remove the tumor, and then get a prosthesis, a fake eye. Mm-hmm. Mind you, that is best case scenario. So everything is going along. Have a couple more scans, MRIs, just to verify that it's at the rate it's growing and I guess to monitor it. We get set up with a surgeon, which was just the most devastating thing that we could really think of at this point next to losing our daughter that we had to make the decision for her that she was going to lose her eyes an infant and have to deal with that for the rest of her life. So fast forward to she's roughly nine months old. We have one more MRI scheduled before the day of surgery, or I'm sorry, two days before her surgery, just so the surgeon can see it, make his final plan of attack, so to speak, and have a successful operation. We go in for the last scan. It's on a Tuesday. We're laying there. They put the IV in. They put our baby to sleep. And they cart her off just like they had done numerous times at this point. And 45 minutes comes and goes while my wife and I are sitting in the waiting room. And then an hour. And then an hour and a half. And then two hours. At roughly two hours and 15 minutes, the oncologist, her partner, the surgeon, and the MRI technician come into the waiting room. Her doctor, her oncologist, had obviously been crying. We immediately knew the worst. But by the grace of God, she said, not only is your baby okay, but she does know she does not have a tumor. She had the scans from the first time to those most recent ones, and you could see it from the first scan growing, growing, growing until it was gone. And not just gone in the first scan they took that day, but the subsequent three scans that they took. Wow. Now, our, our doctor was not a believer. But she said, in my 30 years of practicing medicine, I have never seen anything like this. She said, the only thing that I can contribute it to, and she said, I hate to even say the word, but it's a miracle. She said, maybe there is something to your God. So obviously that wasn't just the end of it. We went back for more scans, for more tests, and the process took until our daughter was about a year old. And they gave her a clean bill of health. Now we did go back for blood work every six months 
for a couple of years just to make sure nothing was elevated make sure that nothing had returned. Right. Everything was always clean. She was the picture of health. It was as though she had never. This next part that I'm going to go into, I want to stress to the listeners the importance of it. Now, while all of this was going on, we obviously had friends and families and pastors and literally people from all over the world praying over our daughter, people coming and laying hands on her, anointing her with oil, you know, praying blessings on her. Yeah. And nothing seemed to be making an impact. Looking back, you know how rear view viewing is always 2020. You can see it perfectly. Yeah. There was one, I feel, extremely important event that allowed for the healing of our daughter. During this time that all of this was going on, the enemy was throwing everything at us to try to keep us distracted and just try to destroy us down to the, I mean, to the most minute detail he was trying to destroy us or keep us occupied otherwise. I had a client of mine offer to fly me down to their villa in Costa Rica to do some work on it. It was going to take about three months, and they wanted it done right then. And it was going to be a fantastic payday, which I desperately needed. Because while we were occupied with everything going on with my daughter, the people that I had in place in my business to handle things in my absence, let's just say they were not handling things. Mm, yeah. Was The business was hemorrhaging money. All of these scans and tests, our insurance wasn't covering because they did not ne- deem it necessary because you could accomplish the same thing with cheaper tests if she was an adult. And I will never forget the price. Every time we went for a scan, it was $8,763 that we paid out of pocket every time. Oh my gosh, man. That's crazy. Now, I'm going to circle back to the important thing I was talking about that made the difference. But to put into perspective, I told you I was 27 when I started out in business. I have a vision board, which I have since stopped doing that. But I wrote on there that by 27, I wanted to net a million dollars. The amazing thing was, at 27, I netted over a million dollars. At 28, I went bankrupt. Through the medical reasons, through the business hemorrhaging money, with me not there, 
I had learned that while on the outside, I was saying I loved God, I wanted to serve God, and I was in a false sense serving God. You know, I was standing behind that pulpit on Sundays, I was preaching, but God was not my number one. Money was my God. Power was my God. Ben, can I ask you a question? Uh, interject. Uh, yes. Did Did you feel like a spiritual pressure in the sense of like something keeping you from really going all the way with God during this time? Um, yes. You didn't recognize it. You did. Yeah. Yes. There seemed to be a chasm between the Lord and myself. That feeling, that presence that I had as a young man. That closeness, that intimacy was not there. And I just could not figure it out. I could not figure it out. I was trying so hard through my means, through what I thought a Christian was supposed to pursue, that I turned into a Pharisee. I was doing all the religious things without the relationship, trying to capture that relationship once again. Because I did not know what had caused that divide. But I, I know this next piece of information I'm going to share with you guys will not shock you. But I was awoken from a dead sleep the week before my daughter's last scan in surgery. And it was a phrase, a question. And it was just... Who are you going to serve? Immediately, I jumped up out of bed. I knew what it was. I knew was who it, audible, it was. Or was. It was it audible. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was audible enough that it woke me up. Yeah. Yeah. And even now, I have just hair standing on end. Yeah. Remembering that. <laughs> Because during this time as well, I had received a letter just a couple of weeks before, before the invitation to go to Costa Rica, before this experience, I had received a letter to come to the Grand Lodge to receive more light. All right, explain to everybody in our audience what that is, what you mean by that. Being that I was a 32nd degree Mason, right, which is all that officially exists, the Scottish Rite goes through 32 degrees. That's it on the books. Obviously, you hear stories of higher levels of Masonry existing, but the term to receive more light means to receive another degree, receive more enlightenment receive more hidden knowledge. So obviously, I talked to the only other person I know that had received at the time what I thought was an honor and who I still to this day think nominated me to receive more light. And I said, well, how about said his name? (laughs) I said, I cannot, I can't right now. I said, you know what's going on with my daughter. I said, you know the struggles we're facing right now. I can't leave 
And he told me that this wasn't them asking you to come. This was a summoning. Which being the headstrong person that I was, I wasn't going to let anybody intimidate me. You know, I was I was a man. I was on top of the world. Nobody was going to touch me. So I told him, no, I'm not going. And he asked me, he said, he said, is that your final answer? And I said, yes. He said, I can still hear the words echoing through the phone. He said, so mote it be, which just simply means so may it ever be. That is the term of finality in masonry. I didn't think much of it until I was awoken in the middle of the night. And immediately I got up. I gathered my literature, my books, my rings, my swords, my aprons, my vestiges. And I went out to our... Yes. I did. I took my Masonic Bible, everything that I had, even even knickknacks that I had. One of my favorite yeah. pocket knives had a beautiful bone-handled oh, yeah. blue Masonic case knife that my wife had spent several hundred dollars on me just a few months before. Took it all out to my shop. I had a large furnace in there. I got that thing as hot as I could. The furnace flew and the burn box were glowing red. I had it so hot. Mm. Now, mind you, this is probably, at this point, this is probably two in the morning. If anybody would have saw me, they would have thought I was a madman. Yeah. But at this point when I heard what I knew to be the voice of the Lord asking me who I was going to serve. I mean, obviously I had enough of the Holy Spirit still giving me guidance in my life that it was a no-brainer. So I burned every bit of it. I went back inside and immediately I typed up a resignation and a renouncement letter, which we'll keep that in mind because we'll come back to that. This was the week before my daughter's test and surgery, as I said before. I felt such a peace and a weight lifted off of me just from doing that and from renouncing the witchcraft. So you intuitively knew after hearing his voice. I immediately knew. Yeah. Yeah. I immediately knew. It come to mind so quickly and so vividly. Almost like the previous 10 years, every word that I had spoken, every ritual I had performed, every rite I had garnered flashed through my mind. In an instant. When every vow, I mean, don't you have to make a bunch of vows too? Before every, before every degree, yeah, you have to swear an oath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we won't go into the oaths because people can look those up. And yeah. 
you you fellows, you know how vile and heinous they are. Oh yeah. You know, talking about your your tongue being torn out by the roots, your yeah, body buried. The little in bit I've heard is pretty terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of my one of mine that I was so caught up in all of it that I almost chuckled at during one of the degrees. It talks about tearing your breast open, your chest, taking your heart and vitals thence, and hanging them from the highest pinnacle of the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. Which there's so much rebellious symbology in there, and desecrating a tabernacle that, at this point in my life, I cannot see how I was so blinded. And that's why I, one of the reasons I agreed to come on here is to get the story out to hopefully save some men from going through what I went through, to open their eyes before they reach the point that their eternal soul is in contempt of damnation. Because I truly feel that that is the point that I was at. Mm that I was so close to the precipice of being so far gone that the Lord was going to turn me over to reprobate. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that's why he spoke to me. But back to what I think made the difference in yeah. the healing of my daughter. Yeah, yeah, let's get back. Yeah. That is the renouncement of this occult practice renouncement of the witchcraft, the repentance in my heart, the asking of forgiveness for him to lift the curses that I had put on myself willingly, yeah, and in turn, I had placed on my family, because during these oaths, not only are you swearing on yourself, but you're swearing on your descendants. Mm. So looking back now, I have no doubt that it was my actions, it was my oaths that I was in ignorance swearing, not before God, not to God, but to Satan. It is absolutely satanic, and I wish so much that the men in the order could see that and that they could break free of that and renounce those curses, not for their sake alone, but like I said, for their families, Yeah, for the third and the fourth generation. I think that that is what made the difference. Oh, yeah. Was Mm -hmm. renouncing that and getting out from under that curse of witchcraft for myself and for my family that allowed the healing to occur, that allowed all these, all these stored up prayers that I knew, I knew that God had heard. And I know, I know that the second that he heard them, I have no doubt that he wanted to heal my daughter. Yeah. But, as we're told, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. 
and me inviting all of that into my life. Now I know what was causing all of that distance that I felt between myself and the Lord that had driven a wedge and had created that chasm and robbed me of that closeness that I once had and that had brought a curse upon myself and upon my daughter because witchcraft and the occult and opening those doors will cost you more than you can afford to pay. So that is the message that I want to get out the most to everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's important too, Ben, and, and I, I want you, I, I'm going to ask you if you will, we can kind of land this, this plane, but I, I think it's important too, that, that people need to know that you're not too far gone, that, uh, you know, if you're even having a doubt about this or, or, or even an inclination to turn, that means the Holy Spirit's still working on you. Can you um, elaborate on, the, on, on that or speak to There might be somebody out there. I know it sounds really TV evangelist-like, but it's still true. There might be somebody out there that's listening to this that, yeah. that just thinks it's hopeless. Can you speak a word to them, Ben? Yes, I would love to. And you were never too far gone. There is nothing that the love of God cannot overcome and that the sovereignty of God has not already made a way for. And that way is Jesus Christ. It says that he became a curse for us so that we could be set free. And that's exactly the point that I had gotten myself into, was I had heaped on so many curses willingly that the only thing that could break it is the blood of Christ. And I can never thank him enough And that is why I will proclaim his goodness and his message with everything that's in me until my last breath on this earth. But there is nothing that you can do that can get you so far away from God that he can't rescue you, that he cannot save you, if you will do just as the scriptures say, and that is turn away from your ways, to repent, to turn to him. That is the only thing that we can have hope in. I thought that I was living in the favor of God. And from the outside looking in, most people would say the same. But I can tell you that the enemy is so crafty and so cunning that he will bless you. He will give you the desires of your heart. And the caveat to that, the big thing with that, that people will argue especially churched people. I'm not going to use the term Christian because I feel like that is something that we are losing rapidly in this society are Christians, but we still have yeah. plenty of church people. Yeah. The thing about the desires of your heart, and they will say, well, God says he'll give you the desires of your heart. As long as the desires of your heart are after his heart. Yeah. That is the thing that people miss. Now, I'm not saying that he will not bless you, that he will not give you an abundance in this life. I shared with you that we lost everything. 
I attribute that to renouncing Freemasonry, the politicians I was friends with, the bankers, the business people that I bought raw materials from, all in Masonry. I got cut off almost instantly. Wow. Some of these people, I had been in their homes. I had been there for their children's birthdays. I had broken bread with them. I spent millions of dollars a year with some of these people. And then they treated me as if they never knew me. Completely rejected, completely shunned. And I bet if you went to any of these lodges that you were talking about earlier, that you could go to any lodge in Canada, United States, anywhere, and they would embrace you. I bet you now they won't, will they? No. Yeah. There is. It's like there's a hotline. It's like it's like how the church should be, but it's not. Yeah, but... that's exactly what I was saying, man. I was yeah. like, oh, that the church were that way, and I know. It's sad that false and even dangerous organizations somehow, at least on the surface, can look like they're they're doing something right and something the church should be doing. And I guess that's that's part of the draw for people. They're Absolutely. not getting that in their their communities, their faith yeah. communities. Yeah. You are absolutely the, right, Lindsay. That's part of the draw with the Hebrew roots, which I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. But but uh, they, they see normal Christianity, and they see it, it, it obviously occupied by sinful people, which we all are. And, and and they say, well, something's wrong with the church, but let me go do this. And then they realize later that, oh, well, doing this is not any better. It's actually worse. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. Yes, that draw, that it's that draw of perfection. You know, we we yearn for it from the garden, you know. Yeah, and to those people who are doubters or think, well, it can't really be that bad. I am living proof that a thriving, prosperous family can absolutely be destroyed without anybody ever knowing why. Hmm. After our bankruptcy closed out, we kept our house through it. Two months after our bankruptcy closed, I got a call from the VP of the bank, who was a good friend of mine. He said, I can't tell you why. Your house is going into foreclosure, and the dude is no is due now you have 30 days to pay the balance the only thing that I could ever get out of that was in mortgages there's a nice little clause in there very short very small print called the good faith clause Mm. and if any point the financial institution loses faith in your ability to pay they can call the note now, mind you, I had never missed a house payment. I'd been paying on my house for years, and they called the note. So, went from my daughter having cancer to being healed, getting out of the lodge, getting out of the spotlight in the community, house going into foreclosure after bankruptcy. 
And the amazing thing is, even to this day, you would think a foreclosure would show up on your finance or your credit report. Yeah. There's no trace I ever owned the house. That's interesting. Completely gone. The fingers of Freemasonry, the fingers of the elite. Yeah. Permeate so deep inside of the things that run not just this country, but the West in general. That there's nowhere you can go. There's no institutions you can be involved with. There's no way you can get away from their influence in our society. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. How, how the tentacles are in everything. Both yeah. Democrats and Republicans. Um, oh, Democrats, Republicans, independents. Everybody. Yeah, your elite businessmen. Yeah. Your large charities, obviously the Shriners. Yeah. It permeates every aspect of society. And when you cut yourself off from that trunk, you are of no use to them. And they will not let you just walk away. Hey, real quick, Ben. I, uh, what was the... Uh, I'm almost hesitant to use this word because it's a controversial word that is typically used in one context, but this word has a broader context. But what what was the grooming process like with this mentor figure? I mean, how how long... Did he mentor you before he invited you to the lodge or, or whatever like that? I mean. Yeah, and I'm about to ask a leading question. Did you have any interaction with him after you left the lodge? This is a twofold answer. The man who originally got me into the lodge, he, he stayed in the Blue Lodge. He never progressed. Oh, wow. The new mentor I sat under and learned from for a decade, mm -hmm. or just shy of a decade. The one who I still to this day feel that he's the one who nominated me, the one I had the conversation with that I was not going, right. the one who told me, so mote it be. Yeah. It was definitely a grooming process. I was hesitant to use that term because I know it is so offensive in many circles, but I was absolutely being groomed. I was appointed to things that no 20-something-year-old should be appointed to. I was awarded contracts that no 20-something-year-old should be awarded. I met people and dined with people and had relationships with people that people literally worked their whole life to try to attain the levels that were just falling in front of me. I was on first-name basis with our governor with our senators, with our U.S. congressmen. The amount of grooming, I think, was in part to my rapid acceleration through all of the degrees, my rapid ability to attain knowledge, my willingness to be the 1%, my desire for power and influence. They saw something in me that 
they wanted to use and manipulate to further their agenda. Hmm. That's what it came down to. And to answer your question, Brandon, have I had any contact with that mentor afterward? Roughly a year after all of this transpired, he lives almost two hours away from me. I live in a small town. He lives in a city. The city where I'm at. Both of you guys can identify that place. Right. I was walking into a local hardware store. And I hear from across the parking lot. Well, Brother Ben, how are you? Immediately, uh, I just got pins and needles, goosebumps again. Immediately, I knew his voice. He had no reason to be in my town, in the parking lot where I was going to the hardware store. He walked up to me, greeted me as a fellow Mason with the handshake, and he said, I've been worried about you. He said, I've really been concerned. All the while, I knew that, and he knew that I knew, that he had not ever reached out from this time he said, so mote it be. This was my first interaction with him. He said, I've been concerned. He said, I was so thankful to hear about your daughter. He said, you're lucky that your business and your home were all you lost. And then he said, we still have a seat for you whenever you're ready to come back. Obviously, I was very shaken at this point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I told him, I said, it's been a very traumatic couple of years. I said, right now, I said, we went so close to losing our daughter. I said, I'm just going to enjoy, enjoy them being little, enjoy their childhood. I said, but maybe one day, just leaving it completely open-ended. That, sorry. Having to compose myself a little bit. <clears throat> that shook me to my core in a way that nothing before that ever had. That sounds like a TV story. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but that's real life. I mean, this really that's happened. real life. So I know that. It is probably going to be something that I have to live with and have to look over my shoulder for the rest of my life because that was not that was not a pleasantry. That was a design meeting for them to let me know that we still have your number. So every day Every day when I go to the Lord with my petitions, with my prayers, I ask for him to protect my family and myself from our past and from those who would seek to destroy us. Most people, when they hear 
this part of the story, like you said, they like, there's no way that's real. That's something that only happens on TV. But I can tell you as a man who there was almost nothing out of my reach in this world to a man who lost everything but gained the most important thing, and that was my relationship with the Lord and the safety and protection of my family, that the evil one, that Satan is real, and that he has dominion in this world, and that he uses men, most of which are doing things blindly, but there are those, those people who want to excel and are willing to pay the price of what it takes to excel and get ahead in this society, in this world, who are willing to make a deal. They're willing to trade the goodness of God for something so temporary and so finite. We have to take the Word of God as fact. When we're warned that Satan is like a roaming lion seeking to devour us, to destroy us completely. And that he will appear as an angel of light. He'll come to you in things that look pleasant and appealing. He'll come to you with promises. He didn't just make the promise of giving the world to Christ standing on the mountain. If you are willing to go down that road and you're willing to forfeit what God has for you, He will give you the desires of your heart as well. Mm-hmm. We have to be spiritually minded because something that I never quite understood until I went through this season of life was that first and foremost, we are a spirit. We are spiritual, and we're living out the human existence. We cannot forfeit our eternity for something as temporal and meaningless as worldly success in this life. Yeah. And I will tell everybody who will listen that that season I went through as hard as it was, as devastating as it was, that I'm thankful, that I praise God that He allowed me to go through that season, to remove the scales from my eyes, to help me realize what is truly going on, and to realize that the systems in this world are not something that's going to be fixed until He returns. That it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat in the office. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican in the office. There is a ruling elite who control the narrative. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you so much for uh, being on our show. We probably need to land this plane here. And uh, yeah, man. This story is incredible. That, that I knew when I heard it that that I was like, man, I want you on our show. I want you to tell it, and and you know it, and it has a very like you said a very practical purpose too. To it's a it's a warning, you know, to warn 
others that, you know, that might be involved that it's not what you think it is. And then, but also just to educate other Christians out there that there's, there's more to this group than meets the eye, so to speak. So, Mm -hmm. but thank you, Ben. I appreciate you coming on our show. Thanks so much, man. That was, that was pretty intense. Couldn't have been, been easy to go back, walk back through so to speak. No, it's definitely a difficult story to share even to this day. Yeah. We're going to keep you anonymous. Uh, We're just going to disclose your first name even in the podcast. So, you know, that way nobody can check you out or find you out. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And remember that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So if just one person is touched by this, if it just helps one person overcome what they're struggling with, I'm glad that you folks let me share this testimony. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thanks for listening and supporting us. And remember, stay naturally supernatural.